The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm in Toronto with the president of Cream Minerals. Cream Minerals trades on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and in the U.S. on the -the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, thanks for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report. My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you. Now, you've had some interesting developments since we last spoke on the phone about a week ago. What's come up with regard to your Nuevo Millennio project? That's right. We issued a news release last week, and in that news release, there were four drill holes from Ansibocas North, which is a potential open pit target on the uh, floor of the caldera. Of the four holes, the hole 9 missed the zone, which happens in exploration drilling. However, holes 10, 11, and 12 did hit the zone. All of the holes returned good values, and the best value was... 68 grams per ton silver and 0.4 grams per ton gold over an intercept of 22 meters. Contained within that intercept and also contained with the intercept on the other two drill holes, 11 and 12, were higher grade intercepts of roughly 2 meters running 150 grams per ton silver and roughly 0.7 grams to 0.8 grams per ton gold. So overall, really quite good results. I'm very happy with them. When you take those within the context of a uh, open pit potential, it becomes really very interesting. Well, you've got high grades at surface, high grades of silver at surface, higher than last time we spoke. Uh, you're most definitely increasing the resource. When are we going to be able to report the resource? When are those figures coming out? By the end of the first quarter, so by the end of March of this year. We expect that the resource will take a, a significant portion of the current inferred, move it into indicated, and we also expect that we'll be adding additional ounces to the current resource. Will this specifically define the company as an open pit resource project? I think it's a little bit too early to to say that it's going to be strictly an open pit project. You know, we do have very good grades in the uh, quartz veins and the quartz stockworks contained in the eastern wall of the caldera. You know, the prime determinant will be total ounces contained in the east wall of the caldera. Are there sufficient ounces there? And are the locations of the quartz veins with respect to each other amenable to underground mining? If that works out, then yes, we could have a, an underground uh, mining operation. Most certainly, at this stage, it looks like we will have open pit operations on the floor of the caldera. In addition to growing the resource, your market cap expands naturally due to the growing price of silver. We've had several people come on the program and predict that it's going to hit 50 or $60 announced by the end of the year. That's correct. I mean, currently our market cap is roughly $35, $37 million. This stock is trading approximately $0.27, $0.28 cents Canadian. There are 153 million shares out, so let's assume that silver rallies strongly, the share price rallies strongly, hits a dollar then our market cap is $153 million. So that should 
hypothetically, directly affect the share price of your company as well. Any junior exploration company which has got a, an in-situ resource and which is working on developing or expanding that in-situ resource can be viewed as a, um, as a long-term call on the price of silver. So as the price of silver goes up, the price of the silver in the ground or the value of the silver in the ground is going to go up. So therefore, the net present value on a fully diluted basis is going to go up. Therefore, the share price sooner or later is going to have to respond to the increase in the net present value of the underlying the share price. In other words, it's a fancy way of saying that if the price of silver goes up, the value of the silver in the ground goes up, and sooner or later the value of the share price has to go up to reflect the increase of the value of the uh, silver in the ground. Well, we've seen some new shareholder awareness just in the last few weeks that you've been a sponsor of the program. could be due to several different factors. How do you see 2012 playing out for those that are not yet with the company? For 2012, as I said, we have the new resource estimate pending uh, by the end of March of this year. Once we have that in hand, then we'll be able to finish laying out our drill program for 2012, and then we'll begin a, a drill program. Initially, it will be 10,000 meters. More than likely, we'll add an, an additional 10,000 meters to the drill program for a total of 20,000 meters in 2012. The big question is, where do you focus uh, those meters? And at this point, I think that we will probably put more focus drilling off potential open pit targets on the floor of the caldera than we will in uh, trying to drill off additional quartz veins in the uh, in the east wall of the caldera. Well, the open pit means that it's actually going to be a lot cheaper to produce an ounce of silver and uh, additionally create that sort of value for your shareholders. That's correct. It's going to be much cheaper to produce an ounce of silver. It's also going to be much easier to produce an ounce of gold. Typically in the open pit areas, we're seeing about 0.4 to 0.7 grams per ton gold, which is a nice credit to have because generally it will pay for all your mining and milling costs. In addition, if you're looking at an open pit operation, your capital investment is going to be dramatically lower than if you're looking at, a, at an underground mining operation, simply because you're spared the expense of drilling the tunnels, the drifts, the adits, etc. That can be incredibly expensive. And of course, there's plenty of infrastructure in Nayarit State, State, Mexico. This is not virgin territory at all for mining. No, it's not. We're within, say, 14 kilometers from the airport, 14 kilometers from power. We're roughly 14 kilometers from water. There's a railway that is, I'd say, 8 kilometers from the entrance to the property, and we're 27 kilometers by road from Topeka, the capital of Nayarit State. So with respect to proximity and infrastructure, it's very favorable for the uh, development of the project because the capital investment required, or the infrastructure capital investment required, is actually going to be quite low compared to some other projects I've seen. You never name names, but I can think of one project in South America which is going to require almost 200 kilometer long pipeline to move the concentrate. I mean, that's going to be incredibly expensive. Now, the project economics will support it, but nonetheless, you're talking about huge amounts of money to do that sort of thing. In our case, because we're within 14K of good quality infrastructure, we won't face uh, investments of, of anywhere near that scale. Who are some of the analysts that have covered you lately? Starting with Northern Securities, Matthew Zalestra. He has a speculative buy rating on the stock with a one-year target of 47 cents. Uh, he issued his initial coverage in late December of 2011. Mike Bandrowski, mining analyst with Claire Securities, is currently issuing morning notes. 
Brian Zietso with Byron Securities has a speculative buy. He currently doesn't have a, uh, a one-year price target. However, he has said that in subsequent research publications, he will have a, uh, a one-year price target. And most recently, Dundee Securities included cream in their summary of junior silver exploration companies uh, for 2012. So effectively, we've got four companies covering us in one form or another. What's the most exciting thing about your company? Yeah, I think the most exciting thing about the company is just the the potential to grow the size of the resource and grow it significantly. We are sitting in a collapsed caldera. We are contained within the caldera as an epithermal system. Epithermal systems can be very rewarding from the viewpoint of grade and tonnage. We're seeing more and more open pit potential on the floor of the caldera, which from the viewpoint of advancing to production, well, they can be advanced to production relatively quickly and relatively inexpensively, which means that the payoff for current investors and, and potential investors could be significant. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, trading on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Ellis. It's my pleasure. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm sitting here with one of our sponsor companies, Gold Rush Resources, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GOD.V, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, just type in GDRRF. I'm with Len Brownlee, the president of Gold Rush. Now, you're focused on gold exploration in Burkina Faso, West Africa. Let's talk about Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso is probably the best place in the world right now to be doing gold exploration. Uh, Many people have heard of the gold exploration being conducted in the Yukon Territory in Canada. The problem there is it's only about a three-month field season. Burkina has an 11-month field season. There have been six new mines opened in the last five years with another four mines that will probably be opened here in the next two to three years. It's very underexplored. It has great geology and just a wonderful place to work. So by field season of 11 months, you mean there's basically no time with the exception of one month that you're shut down? That's variable. Uh, In the north of the country, it's probably less than a month. In the south of the country, closer to the equator, uh, they do have a a bit longer rainy season. Last year, we drilled right through the rainy season on some of our projects because the rains really didn't affect us. Some areas do, however, get a little bit more rain, and there you're looking at probably one month to a maximum of two months that uh, you'd be shut down. Now, Burkina Faso is in West Africa, which is a very prolific area for gold mining. Let's educate our new listeners and enlighten them as to why that's true. Burkina Faso was underexplored historically. It was sort of left alone. It was a former French colony, totally landlocked, a very poor country on the United Nations Development Index, and it just didn't see a lot of exploration. But that didn't mean it didn't have a lot of potential. The amount of greenstone belts, which is one measure of the prospectivity of an area, uh, is higher there than it is in Ghana, Mali, or Niger. And certainly those countries have received much more exploration focused by international companies. Now, that has changed now over the last, say, 10 years. And there have been more and more companies coming into Burkina, and they've been having wonderful exploration success. If you look at Western Australia or the Yukon, the exploration costs per ounce of gold are somewhere around $150 an ounce. In Burkina, they're more likely 10 to $15 an ounce. And, and so it, you just get a lot more bang for your buck as an explorer in looking for gold in Burkina because it's much easier to find and there's been fewer eyes looking on the ground for it. 
So it's a much more prospective place to be than pretty much anywhere else in West Africa. Now, last time we talked, you had alluded to some potential news coming out in a few weeks. Well, those few weeks have come by. This just came out a few days ago. You intersected 8.77 grams per ton of gold over 23 meters and 8.34 grams per ton of gold over 6 meters in fill-in drilling at your flagship Ranjin gold deposit. Yeah, that's right. We're very, very pleased with those results. Early stage, to some extent, we are infill drilling and looking to update our resource estimate sort of end of the first quarter. So this was infill drilling, but it was also deeper and in areas where we had very little coverage previously. Although interpretation isn't uh, precise at this point, it does look like we've uncovered a cross fault with a deeper lens of higher grade gold. I mean, that 8.7 grams is about a quarter ounce gold. Typical grades in Burkina are on the order of one and a half to two grams. So to get 8.7 gram material is very encouraging. And we still have about 58 holes to announce from the program that we conducted at Rongen. We also have 13 trenches just completed there and results from those. And on top of that, we have another four permits with drill results pending where we think we've at least on one of them, have really uncovered something quite remarkable. Now, compared to your peers, you may be dramatically undervalued, and this is the type of company that many investors get into, potentially, when they're looking for that three or four or five or ten banger. They want to find a company that's under a dollar, or in your case, under 30 cents, so that they can hang in for the long term and see some real gains, especially when you're compared to some of the peers that exist in that area. I would like to think that Gold Rush would be a very attractive investment at this point. We have an excellent exploration team that has been put in place over the last year or so. They have between them 15 to 17 years each, I guess, experience. Our chief geologist, John Learn, has five discoveries in Burkina Faso to his name. Our VP Corporate Development and our VP Exploration are also very experienced guys with discoveries to their name. We have a crew of 45 geologists and support workers in Burkina with a fully staffed office. So we're in really good shape in terms of exploration potential and the ability to find gold. We have reasonable capitalization at this point. We've got just so many good projects that we're drilling or have just drilled. So there's really a pipeline of exploration potential, not just one project not just a couple of guys. So I'd like to think that that sort of scenario would be attractive to investors because it's more than a one-shot deal. We're going to do well with Rongun. We think that'll become a, a mine at some point. Then as well, we have a pipeline of projects all the way from grassroots to farther advanced. This company is not necessarily new in the business, is it? The original company that is now called Gold Rush was incorporated in 1966. And as is the case in, in the resource industry, sometimes they go through some transformations over the years depending on market cycles. Gold Rush itself has been in Burkina Faso for six years and is actually one of the elder statesmen of companies in that country. It was sort of part of the first wave, I guess, of exploration companies into the country that began conducting modern exploration there, and that was about 2006. Yeah, an old company and then relatively experienced with regard to Burkina. Subsequent to that, there's been at least two or three waves of exploration companies from Australia and Canada who have come to, to Burkina and are picking up the third and fourth level permits. We think we've got some of the best permits in the country at this point. Let's look ahead a year or two. 
What are your plans for the company? Number one, to advance the Rongwin deposit to the feasibility stage and take it through feasibility with the concept being that we'd like to have a going concern mining operation, open pit heap leach mining operation at Rongyen. And number two, to advance as many of our other targets as possible to in a more advanced state, whether it be pre-feasibility or feasibility. And these things will take two to three years, but the prospectivity of the ground there and the ease in finding gold is such that it's not improbable or impractical for that sort of timeline to be followed. So those are our two main objectives. And I think along the way, as we demonstrate more ounces in the ground and partnerships with larger companies, etc., these will be the sorts of milestones that should lead to an increase in share value. And that's ultimately what our goal is for our shareholders, to give them the best value possible. I've been speaking with Len Brownlee, the president of Gold Rush Resources. Gold Rush trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol G-O-D, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, just type in G-D-R-R-F, or you can find them on the homepage of our our website, ellismartinreport.com. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. I've been on the road with Scott Drever in probably three different conferences, and it's only the beginning of March. Scott Drever is the president, the CEO of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SBL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STV. ZF. Scott, again, welcome to the program. Thanks once again, uh, Ellis. It's great to be here. We are road warriors, aren't we? seems to be that way. Uh, we've spent a lot of time on the road the first part of the year. Do you find when you come out to these conferences all over North America that you get a chance to tell your story to new potential investors and meet with the shareholders and update them in person? What's the value in that for you? It's just that we have been doing a lot of road shows and telling the story of Silvercrest and its progress with respect to its cash flow and its expiration program. And what that does is uh, make people familiar with the story. There's a lot of people uh, across North America that aren't familiar with Silvercrest, and we're just trying to get as many people looking at the story as we possibly can because we think it's a great story in the silver space. We consider there's a lot of upside potential to it. Well, it seems like you've either been very successful at talking about your company or the results that you're finding in Mexico in Sonora State are outstanding with respect to your La Jolla and your Santa Elena properties. Yes, I think people are, are starting to realize that the combination of things that we have in this company make it a very, very interesting story. The Santa Elena has reached a steady state of production. We've got a uh, two-year program there to double the current production. And uh, La Jolla is turning out some really, really exciting uh, results on the on the exploration work that we've done so far. You know, with about 3,000 companies or more in the junior mining space, it's really difficult to find a small handful of companies where the risk has been minimalized. And I believe you're one of those companies where the risk is fairly minimal. That's certainly true. Santa Elena, we went to commercial production last year. So all the resource risk, the financing risk, permitting risk, all of those things that you run into in, in mining operations and bringing them on stream have been put behind us. And with a heap leach open pit operation like we have, one of the risks are generally the last one to be cleared is the recoveries on the metals that you're putting on the heaps. And we're seeing recoveries track very closely the uh, metallurgical work that we did to determine what the recoveries would be. So that's kind of the last one out. Our operations are running nicely. We're putting more through the mill than we had expected uh, initially. And so the goal just keeps coming out at the end of the tube. 
Is it a matter of a natural flow of understating and overperforming? Well, we like to do that. We like to be able to look back and say, well, we said we were going to do that and we've done it. So, yeah, we tend to understate a little bit and, and hopefully overperform. I was interviewing one of my peers yesterday, Sean Rakimov with SilverStrategies.com. He's a silver analyst that's been around for a long time. And I asked him to pick one company out of the entire space. And he mentioned your company. Sean has been a good supporter of Silvercrest from quite a ways back. I can remember standing on the Santa Elena Hill just after we had finished off the drilling and the feasibility study. And Sean's comment was, I really like this. You have the timing right because he says, by the time you're into production, my guess is that silver would be $50. And I think that was probably in 209 or someplace. And I think we banged on that $50 range a couple of times. No, I asked him, he's been a shareholder for a while. He certainly got in when the price was uh, well below where it's at today. I said, would you possibly consider accumulating more stock at its current level, which is near $3? And he said, absolutely. Well, I think he's right. I'm a little biased, mind you, but absolutely, I think he's right. We've got a significant number of catalysts coming down the road. We've got good solid cash flow. We've got money in the bank. We expect to double the production and hopefully the cash flow within two years. And La Jolla is coming on strong in the results it's returning. All of those things together, I think, when the the market identifies the value associated with each of those steps, we should see a a decent re-rating on the share price. Now, you have two potentially humongous if I can use a California word, projects there. You're defining the resource at La Jolla, and yet you're continuing to expand the resource at your production site at Santa Elena. That must be contributing to the, the rise in the share price. It's certainly Santa Elena, and the ability to double the production in the next short while is adding to that value that you see in the share price. We haven't cut off that particular deposit. We're open pitting it at the moment. We do know that there's a considerable resource below the open pit, and we have never cut it off a long strike or to depth. So our expansion program in part includes an underground decline that will examine what we know about the resource under the pit, but also extend it into the area where there's been no exploration work. Tell us about the potential size of the polymetallic resource at the Coloradito target in La Jolla. Yeah, we have several targets at La Jolla. The one that we focused on, obviously, is the main mineralized trend where we announced a resource recently of 102 million ounces of silver equivalent. There are a couple of adjacent targets to that main mineralized trend, one of which is the Coloradito. And we announced the results of some historical drilling that we were able to uh, confirm. We see there a uh, tungsten molly gold-silver system that has some sizable dimensions, if you can look at the, the historical data, and we have a number of holes planned for that. But generally, the container size there, I think, is about 500 meters by 200 meters wide by a couple of hundred meters depth. There's a lot of room for a large potential open pit deposit, but obviously we have a lot of work to determine how much of that container size has uh, the appropriate mineralization. So you really can't speculate about how that's defined at this moment. You can just say that you're looking. That's exactly correct. We have an 80-hole program going on at the moment for La Jolla, and I think there's 8 or 10 slated for that particular deposit. And at the end of that series, we'll have a much better idea of what it means and how big it might be. Is that 80 holes for 2012? Uh, Yes. Uh, We hope to have that finished probably by June. Uh, with the view to doing a resource update before the end of the year.
How are you financing all, all this drilling? We have $30 million in cash in the Treasury. We're well positioned there. Also, Santa Elena is uh, providing about 2 to $2.5 million a month in cash flow. So from cash flow and cash in the bank, we're well positioned to finance both our expansion plans and our exploration activity. You're well on the way to predicted ratings by some of the research analysts that have been following you. Yeah, we've made good progress towards those targets. I think Canaccord's analyst has put a $5.75 as a target price for us. Jennings Capital out of Toronto has a target price of $5.25. And Dundee Capital just initiated their coverage on us last week and uh, have put a buy signal on it but haven't given us a target number yet. So these are all recent updates, if I recall. That's true, yeah. We had a, um, a mine tour and a site tour a couple of weeks ago, and those analysts were on those trips. You know, they're talking from firsthand viewing of our work and, and what we're doing, and, uh, you know, they make their own judgments. Well, that's up about a dollar, dollar and a half or so since we last spoke at the end of January. We've been doing some extra legwork in terms of getting the story out, and I think we're starting to see the traction uh, grab hold on the the story and people are looking at the value that's here now and the value they see coming down the road, it's created that kind of interest and we're trading good volumes. We're doing probably four or 500,000 shares a day, which gives everybody good liquidity. Nevertheless, as, as well known as you may be in Canada and throughout us in the sector, you're still a new story to many in the U.S.? We've started to focus on that because obviously the the market there, particularly for silver companies, is much, much greater than uh, what it would be in Canada. So we've redirected some of our investor awareness program to the U.S. We've been doing road shows in eastern U.S., in the Midwest, and also on the West Coast. There again, I think it's people starting to be aware of that story. We're also looking at the possibility of moving to a, a more senior exchange both in Canada and the U.S. What are you most excited about Silvercrest during the next 12 to 18 months? Obviously, the operations are important. It'll help us to build our cash flow and the uh, expansion plan that'll help us to, to double our production are, are very important things. And those are good, stable things that every company needs. The excitement, I think, is going to turn around the La Jolla project because our first indications on that is that it has the potential to be a huge deposit and uh, can be a significant game changer for Silvercrest. Bigger than Santa Elena? Absolutely. Uh, I think if you look at the numbers at La Jolla of 102 million ounces of silver equivalent, it's probably bigger at this moment than what Santa Elena is, although we still have the expansion plan to determine what uh, Santa Elena's ultimate size will be. What does that mean for a company like yours potentially four or five years down the road? What's your long-term vision for Silvercrest? We're always trying to grow in some fashion, whether it's internally through the expansion plans at Santa Elena, for example. We look at other projects that could be brought on relatively quickly. It's a little early to tell at La Jolla just yet, but there's a whole range of possibilities there in terms of production. You could do a production unit of three to 4,000 tons a day because there's some very high-grade areas in that deposits itself, but it could also be 40 or 50,000 tons a day because the indications are that there will be tonnage and grade to support that kind of production. And what's the average cost per ounce as it stands today? Our cost per ounce at uh, Santa Elena is 
about eight dollars. It depends which quarter you pick, but about eight dollars per ounce of silver equivalent. How are you feeling about the price of silver heading up to possibly sixty dollars an ounce by the end of the year? I think I'm on the record someplace of having said that uh, I expect to see it at least touch sixty dollars this year. I've been speaking with Scott Drever, the president and CEO of Silvercrest Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX is STVZF. And we're at the Royal York Hotel in Toronto, Ontario. Scott, thank you very much for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report. My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you very much. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced-staged gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, TanzanianRoyalty.com. That's Tanzanian TanzanianRoyalty.com. Join me now for a conversation with the president of Lomico Metals, Paul Gill. Lomico Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LMR.V. Lomico holds a portfolio of assets in the Americas with a graphite project in Quebec, a lithium project in Chile, and gold in British Columbia. Paul, welcome back to the Ellis Martin Report. Thanks, Ellis. Your catchphrase on the Lomico website is electric minerals and gold in the Americas. Absolutely. We put together Lumico for the specific purpose of looking at the new green economy and electric minerals specifically as it relates to electric vehicles and, in fact, some of the new technology that's coming out and being patented that need rare earth metals, that need these new types of metals such as graphene and graphite. We think that's the growth story for the next 25 to 30 years. I wasn't aware of the buzz in the market about graphite until a few weeks ago. What's going on? Well, I think people are really catching on to the fact that uh, this particular mineral has got a big, bright future, and specifically in relation to electric vehicles. They use graphite, at least 10 to 20 times as much graphite in an electric car battery as they do lithium. So everyone knows about lithium. Everyone knows it's a substance that's required for electric vehicles. But no one seems to have caught on about the graphite. And that aspect of it, in addition to its use in various other batteries, in the purest form, of course, is very, very interesting. And I think now that not only has there been graphite as a big hit, but the next step up from there is graphene, which is an interesting substance. It's a two-dimensional allotrope of carbon, which is essentially carbon shaped into a chicken wire and laid out flat. And this particular substance has incredible properties. It's a superconductor at room temperature. It's very heat resistant, makes steel look wimpy. It's 200 times stronger than steel. Very interesting substance, and it has a lot of interesting uses. So why aren't we using it for everything? Well, right now it's about how to manufacture this stuff. It's only been invented or discovered in 2010. Two scientists in Europe actually uh, discovered the properties of this particular substance. It hasn't been manufactured en masse as yet, but they did receive a Nobel Peace Prize for discovering a substance, which I think is utterly fascinating. 
Paul, let's review the various uses for graphite, if you don't mind. There's a number of different applications. Of course, everyone knows about hockey sticks and tennis rackets using graphite. It's in the steel industry as well, automotive parts, lubricants, which not everyone knows about. Even in the nuclear industry, there is pebble bed reactors which require graphite for them to work properly. So there's a number of interesting applications, and who knows what the future will bring as well. Well, the future is bringing graphene into play, evidently. I understand it's extremely thin and pliable. Yeah, absolutely. I think already we've got people contacting us from Europe and other places indicating that there's 25 separate new patents coming out related to graphene itself. And that really got me going. If there is that many more products out there now that are being planned or maybe in the thought process, there's a lot more than that that are being looked at. What's particularly interesting to me is the new concept of using graphene in a battery. If graphite is a good conductor, graphene is the best conductor. So its application along with lithium in a battery is utterly fascinating and I think that's where a lot of the excitement around electric vehicles and graphite and lithium are going to come from. Tell us about the Catmules Graphite Project in one of the most mildly friendly jurisdictions in the world, Quebec. Yeah, absolutely. We picked up the uh, Catmule property in January of this year. January 5th we made the announcement and it's a 1600 hectare property with previous drilling located on it in about a 300 to 400 meter area. That is particularly interesting to us because within that small location of 300 to 400 meter in a much larger property, they've been able to place 26 drill holes, 23 of which hit very good mineralization, and they specifically found graphite in location. The best intercept was 8% graphite over 28 meters. When you look at that kind of intercept, it compares well to some of the properties that are out there right now that have got much better valuations, such as Lactonife and others that are run by Focus Metals and Northern Graphite, which are both multiples compared to Lomico. So we're not at the point where we can make assurances about the kind of mineralization there is at Quat Mill, but we certainly know that it started just like they did with historical information, and all we need to do is get on the property and start exploring and drilling to prove up some of those previous intercepts. So you were following the graphite story for a while, and you found a property at the beginning of the year to add to Lomico's portfolio. Yeah, we announced back in September and October that we were looking for a suite of minerals and metals. That included graphite, included additional lithium properties, the one we already have. It includes cobalt properties. And those are very interesting. Cobalt's not a, a easy substance to come by. And those kinds of properties, including silver and copper, of course, which are much more prevalent, are what I consider and what we consider electric minerals, minerals that are essential to the development of new technologies in the coming 20 to 25 years. And that's what, you know, these junior companies all are looking to do, get involved in an industry and supplying an industry that's going to continue to grow for the next quarter century. And that's where we feel that valuation will increase for Lameco and return on investment will happen for shareholders is when we're involved in an industry that continues to grow and the demand for the minerals in that industry continue to grow. You also have a lithium project in Chile. Yeah, we have been looking for properties, and we do have one that we've purchased down there called the Agua de Caliente property in Chile. It's in the Atacama region, and it's particularly interesting to us because one of the major producers, SQM, which trades at 30 or 
dollars on the New York Stock Exchange owns uh, a portion of that same salt lake that we own mineral concessions on. So if they were to require that particular salt lake for development, we'd be right there having a front seat. That's kind of the philosophy around what we've been doing. We reach a certain stage of development, and then we're waiting for the big developers to move forward and be caught up with them. Instead of just proceeding by ourselves and perhaps spending a lot of shareholders' money without having an end game in mind, we have an end game in mind with all these properties. We purchase them and we work them strategically to make sure that they get the best return on investment. You're basically an exploration company with hopes to be a project generator and have these properties joint venture down the road. Absolutely. That's the main purpose of exploration is to find something and then work to develop it with another group. One of the biggest things that I learned early on in junior mining exploration was that there's at least 10 companies that die on the vine before a mine is created. So you might have 10 companies that have optioned a property. All of those, for one reason or another, drop that property, and it's the 10th or 11th one that actually makes that mine happen. So we don't want to be number nine or number eight. We want to be the one that uh, still owns the property when things happen. And if you're going to be that one, you're going to have to be patient and play your cards at the right time. And that's what we're trying to do. You're a polymetallic company. You're not just relying on the rare earth space for your success. Yeah, absolutely. We picked up a gold property in uh, British Columbia, and we're in a good spot there because it acts as a hedge for our company because we're not just focused on the alternative energy or the new green economy, but we also have our gold property as a hedge. That property is, again, surrounded by the company China Minerals Mining on three sides. It has adjacent to it the Table Mountain Mine, a permitted gold mill, and we're in a good location there. Uh, we've just done exploration on that last year. We've found several areas of gold in soils, and we're going back perhaps to look at it again should the timing be right this summer. The other thing that we found on the property that was fascinating it was a high area of anonymous zinc in soils, about 100 hectares across. So that's fascinating as well because that's amenable to further exploration. Gold and zinc may not be driving recent volume right now, though, Paul. It's been close to a million shares traded per day, which in this market is pretty incredible. Yeah, it's all about graphite and graphene. We're one of the first movers right now, and I think that what we have is a top-five property. We paid a little bit more than most people would, and we know exactly where to look. It's not a huge area we have to look at, 300 by 400 meters that we're going to focus on, and within that area, we've got a fair chance of finding the graphite in good numbers, and that's what is really exciting people now. It's done a tremendous amount of volume, and we're certainly uh, happy to see large shareholders stepping in along the way. It bodes well for the future. What is your share structure? Right now, there is uh, 65 million shares outstanding with 83 million fully diluted. The major shareholders include large institutions, the average trading price is about 10 and a half cents. We've done uh, quite a bit of volume and we're setting ourselves up for an exploration campaign which will add value. So we feel that we're in a good spot and shareholders and investors it hasn't gotten away on them. So there's still, still lots of opportunity for new shareholders as well. You've had some success in your own history. You were with Norsemont Mining for a while. Yeah, I was very blessed to be with a company that had a great history. It had a uh, option on a property that Rio Tinto optioned to us in Peru called Constancia. That property was drilled at the time that copper was very hot, and we were hitting large intersections of copper, 
And as the copper price went up, we were looking at a, a share price that was doubling and tripling almost every three or four weeks. It started from five or six cents, ended up at about 450 at a final buyout price. And so the value of that buyout was $512 million, starting from a company that was $1 million in inception. That's a great accomplishment. And right now that property is being developed by Hud Bay Minerals in Peru. Well, Paul, it's been great catching up with you. Thanks for filling us in with regard to your company, Lomico Metals. Thanks, Alice. It's always great to talk to you. Hope to see you soon. I've been speaking with Paul Gill, the president of Lomico Metals, on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LMR.V. Find a link to Lomico's website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin reporting from the PDAC in Toronto, Ontario. The largest mining convention, resource convention of its kind in the world, happens every single March in Toronto. And I'm sitting down with Sean Rakimoff, the proprietor, the writer, the editor, the publisher and the owner of silverstrategies.com. Sean, welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. Hi, Oz. I'm really excited about silver, and I've been in this market a long time, and I'm buying physical bullion like I've never done before. And I'm excited about a lot of silver stocks, and I'm getting that excitement from a lot of the buzz and a lot of the companies that I meet and a lot of the people I meet. And the news is also driving me to collect. What's your motivation for doing what you do? I have started in the silver space early on about 10 years ago now, at least 10 years ago. And early on, uh, you know, I was working on Wall Street. I uh, figured that uh, the next area and the next place to be was gold. So I started digging deeper and I found that silver is to gold what gold is to everything else, or say paper currencies. What does that mean, break it down a little bit? Basically, gold is sort of the linchpin to the paper currencies. They all depreciate against gold. And silver at the time I was looking at was trading at 80 plus to one to gold, or that would mean that one ounce of gold would buy you 82, I think it was, or higher ounces of silver. And uh, the historic ratio should have been around 10, 12, 15 in that area. So at that time, silver should have outperformed gold for the cycle about five times. And then gold would outperform everything else. So silver was kind of the most leveraged asset that I could find, and uh, I spent less but 10, 11, 12 years in that space studying companies and uh, studying other aspects of the industry. Well, that ratio has closed up a bit in the last couple of years. Speaking of leveraging, and you think it's going to become even tighter as silver perhaps outperforms gold in the coming months and years? Uh, I certainly believe that. I think the ratio is about 50, 55 today. I think we will see it below 20, probably closer to 10 sometime during the cycle. 2013, 2014, this year? Probably not this year. It's hard to call the timing, uh, but uh, I would say certainly this decade that be my expectation. And you tend to find out about what's exciting in the silver space before most people do. How do you account for that? It's a sheer amount of research and I think over the years I've built up enough contacts and uh, you have to be proactive. You have to be out there always asking questions, looking, and sometimes the information comes to you. The rest of the time, you need to go out and get it. For instance, at this very conference, I found out about two companies, uh, two new silver companies. Uh, one is in the States, one's in Canada. The, the, the one in Canada has been in production for years, but it's, it's private. That's how you do it. You, you keep digging, and uh, sooner or later, you come up with something good. Really, the best way to make money right now with a minimal amount of risk is if you do find a producer or somebody who's about to go into production where maybe the word is not out like it 
like it could be? Well, at this very moment, I think the entire market is uh, very oversold. That's notwithstanding silver's recent run from whatever, 28 to, to 37, whatever it, it was in the last uh, two months since the new year. The mining companies themselves are very undervalued, uh, trading at uh, rock-bottom levels in terms of valuation. And that applies to the, the seniors as well as the juniors. My preferred area is the junior to mid-tier companies that are sort of over the hump in terms of whether they're going to make it at all. So these are companies with established resources and or production. They'll be classified as growth stories otherwise in other industries. You're not really talking about the smaller companies too much unless you find something that's potentially very, very exciting? Correct. I mean, with the smaller companies, you have to have a specific reason and that reason is a lot of times it's an intangible. It's very hard to put it in terms that are easily understood. Sometimes it's a hunch, sometimes it's the pedigree of the management, sometimes it's the deposit that excites you. Until you get to a point where the risk is manageable, I try not to bring it to the wider audience. So really, the management team in this case is not enough. You need to know what's in the ground. Yes, you do need to know what's in the ground. Management is always important. It's probably paramount. Sometimes good management may take three years to come up with something good, and I don't want to be telling you for three years that, yes, it's coming, it's coming. So uh, you need to have the goods, and even once they have the goods, it sometimes takes a while for the market to appreciate the story. So you may not tie up your money or recommend that anyone tie up their money in a uh, penny stock or a micro-micro stock you, if, a, if a possible asset in the ground looks decent and the management team is very strong, or it might take three years for it to grow from five cents to 50 cents to a dollar to two dollars. You're not willing to wait that five years. You'll come back and and take a look in a year or two. I am willing to wait, but I usually don't bring it to the wider audience because that's how you track and that's how you're going to be first, uh, you know, Johnny on the spot. When they do come up with the goods, you're going to know about it because you've been tracking. But uh, not everybody spends every day, you know, watching these stories and tracking companies and news and understanding the developments like I do. But what if I want to know and and my listeners want to know what you're tracking before you put the word out? Uh, And that's fair enough, but then I have to classify as as that. Uh, You know, if it's an early stage story that uh, holds some promise, then I have to say that. And if it's uh, something different, you know, if it's an advanced story that's waiting, say, for a permit or something like that, that's a different story. And the valuations will often be different. So, again, it depends on the the type of stories that are suitable for each investor. In my case, I try to track them all and then find the ones that are closer to being uh, the value being realized by the market. Out of all the companies you've taken a look at up to date now, is there anything you're willing to talk about for gratis here? Well, uh, one story that I believe still has legs is uh, Silver Crest. It's a story that I've liked for quite some time from the day going back to El Salvador when they had projects there. It's a very, very competent team that uh, has proven not time and again that they can come up with the goods. I mean, the stock's performing well, and I expect it to perform even better, both uh, you know in the marketplace as well as uh, on the development of their assets. In full disclosure, they are a sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. I should clarify that. And they've doubled since November. They've gone from about $1.50 up to $3, which is very, very, very unusual in this market. And I would account it to their management team. And they've done everything they said they were going to do. It's been a long-term project, I think, since 2004, somewhere in that neighborhood. And... It just keeps getting better, the story. So this is something that uh, you're willing to disclose and 
And if somebody asks you, you'll just volunteer that information like I will. Correct. And I uh, also have a position in the company, and uh, that's full disclosure as well. But again, I've had that position for years. You know, it was one of those things that you have to wait until the story comes uh, sort of to fruition. A story that is probably a couple of years behind Silvercrest that I am liking today is a company called Haldra Silver. This is an up-and-coming junior silver producer with a project in uh, British Columbia, Canada. They have uh, some resources. They, they, it's a all-form underground silver mine. It's a very high-grade, narrow-vein situation that, uh, in my opinion, very undervalued at current time, and they're wa- waiting for a final mining permit. So once they receive the permit, they probably will be in production within six months. Have they got a mill in the area to be able to go into production? Yes, they uh, did acquire a mill, and they're in construction right now. Interesting. What's their current share price? Uh, I'd have to say it's about dollar thirty Canadian. Okay, so let's say you probably got into Silvercrest back when they were about thirty cents or forty cents or somewhere low and ridiculous at that point. Are you the type of guy to accumulate at these levels, even at two eighty? Uh, see, that depends on the investor. For myself, I would because. It's better to buy something at uh, whatever it is, 280 that goes to probably $10, $15 over several years than to buy something at $0.30 cents that's at $0.30 cents five years later with, you know, three times the share structure. Even though you have those shares at Silvercrest, uh, at whatever you paid for them a few years ago, you would still accumulate, hypothetically, in this company at 280 or $3 a share? Yeah, at this point, I think, uh, you know, that you want to accumulate in stages probably. If there's a pullback, you buy more. If there's a better reason. It's not cheap by any stretch, but uh, it is. I think there's still plenty of value left, especially, again, I'm an analyst. I have to look forward, and I expect the La Jolla project to grow significantly in size, and that's why I see the value, uh, the additional value, as well as they're going to be expanding their current operations, the production side of things, and that should double as well, which, if I am correct in my expectations for metal prices, uh, there's plenty of value in the company still. Well, I'm not an analyst. I'm a journalist, as I keep explaining to everybody that asks me analytical questions about the sector. I've been thinking from my experience in the business that this is a 9 to $12 stock within a year and a half, two years. That's a difficult projection to make, but I wouldn't argue with you on that. Fair enough. To learn more about Sean Rakimoff, go to silverstrategies.com. That's silverstrategies.com. Sean, thank you very much for joining us today in the program. Thank you, Alice. I'm Millis Martin, reporting from the PDAC. Thanks for joining us. You can listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Adam Smith is the Vice President of Corporate Development for Roco Resource Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO.V. Roco is a Canadian-based exploration company with gold, silver, and zinc assets in Sonora State, Mexico, a very prolific area for several peer mining concerns. Oroco expects to begin producing high-grade gold as well as silver at their Cerro Prieto project in 2013. Adam, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again, Alice. You've had some interesting news come out recently. You're clear to begin drilling out the property even further. Oroco announced the receipt of the full suite of permits from the Mexican government that are required to build and operate our open-pit gold and silver mine in northern Sonora. That's a big milestone for a company like Oroco. We now have permits in place 
We have acquired the surface rights on the property. We, of course, own the mineral rights. We have a, an economic assessment in place that shows what the capex for the project is going to be, what the working capital is, and how much profit the mine will spend. We have a construction contractor in place, and we have all the necessary rights of way to build the new road to the property, which connects us to the nearby highway, which is only six kilometers away. We've also announced uh, last year that we have an indicative term sheet for the required capital to build the mine in place with a financier in New York, and we're presently working our way through the requirements to close that financing. And you expect to go into production next year, don't you? This is a very simple mine to build and to put into operation. Uh, It's an open pit, which is as simple as it gets. The ore starts at surface, so there's no time-consuming work to strip away waste before we get to ore. And the processing is by way of heap leach, which is as simple as it gets, again, in the mining business. So we anticipate production in less than a year from the time we start construction. So we could even be in production this year. But if not this year, it's going to be early next year. Now, you're going to use that revenue early on from producing gold and silver to further stepping out the project, correct? We only have drilled about 10 or 15% of the available geology to us. After we completed that process, we realized we had critical mass in the form of a gold resource big enough to finance to production and to generate significant revenue. So we've got tremendous additional geological resources to discover at that property. We have a drill turning on the property right now for the purpose of expanding the resource, and we would expect in the coming years to both drill on our property to the north and south of the current gold mine and as well on the additional properties to the east, which we've just acquired in the last month. One of the things that is attractive about your company is that you're a 28-cent stock and you don't have 250 million shares out there. We've been very careful, very conscious of dilution. Most of Oroco's management have been with the company since its founding. We are very conscious of diluting the shareholders' interest in the company. Oroco has just 63 million shares outstanding. We've advanced the project from its IPO in 2008 to mine construction, which we expect to commence this year, and production either at the end of this year or beginning of next year. And as most of the management of the company have been with uh, Oroco since its founding, we are very conscious of shareholder dilution. We want Oroco shareholders to stay very highly leveraged to the potential revenue of this property. It's not a very volatile stock from what I've noticed. During the last year, the capital markets have seen a great deal of volatility, but Oroco share price has held steady. You're right. We attribute that to the fact that we work very hard to communicate with our shareholders. We sit down with them very frequently, and we've attracted a very loyal bunch of, for the most part, institutions who understand the timeframes involved and understand the opportunity here. They also recognize in Oroco the potential to both generate cash flow in the near term and expand the resource that that cash flow is based on, and to generate significant additional value to the shareholders through the development of Oroco's second property, which we call the Shoshapala Project, and Shoshapala has some very interesting attributes which make it, in my opinion, one of the most exciting new exploration plays to come to the market this year. What are your plans for the company over the next 12 months? We will complete the process by which Oroco will finance the construction of the Cerro Prieto mine. We will also continue exploration to expand the resource at that mine. And very importantly, uh, we will commence exploration on our second set of properties, the Shoshapala Project, which is located in Guerrero State. It is in what has been dubbed the Guerrero Gold Belt. The Guerrero Gold Belt has seen the discovery of over 20 million ounces of gold in the last decade. Discoveries continue in the Guerrero Gold Belt up to today with New Strike Capital's amazing gold discovery in the last year. Is that region as prolific as Sonora State? It's a much more concentrated area of gold deposits. From the top of the Guerrero Gold Belt which is the Annapola deposit discovered by Newstrike, to the bottom of the Guerrero Gold Belt, which is the Xochapala intrusion, 
owned by Oroco, is just 35 kilometers. Within that 35 kilometers, there are six examples of intrusions, which are geological structures which outcrop on surface. They break the surface, if you will. Each of those intrusions which has been drilled, Anapala, El Limon, Nukai, Los Filos, and Bermahal, has produced a gold resource in excess of 3 million ounces of gold. Together, the region hosts over 20 million ounces of gold, as well as Mexico's largest gold mine, the Los Filos gold mine owned by Gold Corp. The last intrusion in the region, which is the site of the original discovery 80 years ago of gold, is owned by Oroco. That's Xochipala. It's the last of these very exciting geological structures to be drill tested. Oroco plans to focus its exploration activities on Xochipala during 2012. It sounds as if you've done everything you stated you were going to do, and we can look forward to more potentially exciting news in the coming weeks and months. I think Oroco will just reach its stride in 2012. We will demonstrate that uh, we have a mine that is going in production and will quickly generate cash flow. And for those people who believe that the value of gold is steady or going to continue to rise, we are very highly leveraged to the value of gold in terms of the value of the company versus the potential future revenues. And I think we've got the potential in Shoshapala for a major new discovery, potentially one of the major discoveries of 2012. Thank you, Adam, again for joining us today on the program. I'm Ellis Martin, and I must disclose at this time that I'm a shareholder of Roco Resource Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO.V. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.